Let's pray. Father, as we've just prayed and as we've even read from your word, your word is a truth, it is life, it is where we come to know you and love you. It is the way that your spirit stirs us and grows us. Would you come now and do it again for us? We thank you for this glorious day. The sweetness of the Lord's day still lingers in our minds and hearts. Come and make it still sweeter as we conclude by turning to your word. We love you, O Lord. Come and help us tonight that our weakness would be set aside, that you would fill us with strength to understand and believe the truths that you've proclaimed about yourself, and that we might, as we read about it, be comforted and encouraged, that our hearts might be turned more and more to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Our text tonight is Exodus 34, beginning in verse 9 down through verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. And Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the firstfruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall cover your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy and inspired word. It is fascinating to me that as we continue through the book of Exodus, what we have been saying about it all along continues to come true. That is simply that when we arrived at chapter 25, the rest of the book is all about worship. It keeps becoming about worship. I keep coming back to my study every Monday morning and I sit down and look at the next text and I say, well, I guess we're going to talk about worship again this week. And then the next week comes around and oh, I guess we're going to talk about worship again this week. And, and it's the same now. Um, the Lord is revealing to His people and to us the nature of His character and the way that we relate to Him and it points us back to worship. The 17th century Puritan Elisha Coles wrote this in his discourse on the sovereignty of God, speaking about worship. He says, there's nothing more equal and just than to worship and serve Him whose we are. To love and to live to Him from whom we have our life and breath. Especially considering that His commandments are our life. He says, there's nothing better than to worship and serve the God to whom we belong. There's nothing better than to live with Him and to love Him and to walk with Him because His ways are our life. Isn't that our chief end? Isn't that what the first shorter catechism means, really, when it says that it's our our chief end to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Isn't it our chief end to, to love and to live to God from whom we have our life and breath? It is to live our entire existence in reference to Him. That's a very broad definition of worship, simply that we live for God, that we live with Him, that we walk with Him. And it's in that sense, a proper relationship with God is the remedy to every single trouble that could ever assail us in this life. And all of the difficulties that we go through all the troubles that we have, all, all of the hoping that this world would soon pass and we would be in the next, that all of these things are remedied and we find comfort in a proper relationship with the Lord, in, in a proper worship of Him and communion with Him as we come to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that what we've seen through Exodus so far? That over and over again, at, at every single point, when the Israelites reach a moment where Moses has to go and say, Lord, what now? Or or, what now? Or what what do we do as we move into this particular place or into this particular arena? The Lord continually turns the Israelites back to Himself, reminding them that their hearts and their lives are rightly oriented when they are looking at and walking with God. Not, Not with anything else not with any of the pagan gods of the world around them, not with their own sinful desires, but everything is right and good when they're they're keeping their gaze on God and they're moving toward Him as He has extended Himself toward them. 
And the same is true of us today. Still, it is a wretched thing to live life only for self. You know people like this. Some of us have experienced it ourselves, where we've tried to live just for pride and status. It's a miserable existence. It's not the way we're meant to live. We are not meant to live toward ourselves, but toward our God. And that's what the Lord continually teaches the Israelites in this book called Exodus, and it's what He's continually, continually teaching us that we find true life when we live to and for God as we come to Him through Jesus. The right way to live and to be as a person is to be in relationship with the God who made us. And that through the mediator that He has established. It's in this passage that Moses still stands before the Lord on the mountain. And remember, he is, he's, he's been standing there for a little while. He's gone up to the mountain and he had these requests for God. And this really tallies up now to his fourth request in verse 9. Look, look down and see. 34 verse 9. Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. This request is answered by verses 10 through 28. This request that God would go with them, that he would pardon them. The Lord takes time to answer by way of renewing the covenant that has been broken. Remember in 32, they sinned against him with the golden bull. Moses comes down the mountain and he signifies the breaking of the covenant by throwing the tablets of the law on the ground and breaking them to pieces. The Lord through Moses declaring, you have you have sinned against me in a way that is unacceptable and I will, I will destroy you and consume you. That covenant that was broken through the mediatorial work of Moses has now come back into the forefront and it will be renewed here in the, the presence of the Lord as he stands before Moses. In this renewal, we see a picture of of the whole covenant. It, it doesn't account for everything that has been written about the covenant so far. It, it assumes a lot that's already been stated. But we see here three, three main things. That the covenant is gracious, that it's all about worship, and that it's done through Moses the mediator. And those are going to be three points here in just a minute that we're going to come to. But before we look at those particulars of the covenant renewal, I want us to really zoom out and consider the, the, the big picture of all of this. Really, some of what we've already said. God continually responds to Moses with revelations of his own character. This is very significant. We read through the book of Exodus. It's, it's, It's as if, you'll pardon my sarcasm, it is as if God wants us to remember who he is. That he continues as it were, to repeat himself as he reveals himself to the people. Remember just, I mean, just verses ago, that this, the glory revealed to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Moses wanted to know who God is, and so what he reveals 
is this aspect of his character that he is merciful and just. It's a picture of who he is. His answer to Moses is what what you need, Moses, and what the people need is to know me. If you back up even further from that, into the previous chapters and the whole section of 25 through, through chapter 31, those rules for worship, the instructions for building the tabernacle, and not just not just rules for right worship for the sake of having rules for right worship, but they were rules and, and laws, um, instructions in the practices the Israelites should have that, that revealed to them and informed them about the character of God. Right? What does it say that they need to have a tent in the middle of the camp? It says that God is coming near to them. This isn't a revelation to them of, of the strict God and how He must be worshipped. It's a revelation to them of the mercy of God and the loving kindness of God that He would come and descend and dwell among them. It's something that we know points forward to what Christ has done for us. In all of those chapters about the, the tabernacle and right worship, it was just God continually revealing the merciful, just nature of Himself to His people. And even back further than that, if you jump... Then to, to chapter 20 through 24, as he establishes the law in the Ten Commandments and, and what we call the Book of the Covenant that sort of teases out some of those rules and guidelines, the, the, the beginning of God's relationship with his people. He's brought them out of Egypt. He sits them down before the mountain and he gives them these ten words. And what does he do in these ten words? It, it's not just a list of rules. It is God's very character codified. Do you want to know who God is? He asks the Israelites, these laws are the very essence of my character, the very essence of my desire for my people to walk in. All along, God continually is revealing to Moses and the people who He is. At every point, what is God saying? At every point, what does God believe the people need? And imagine all the difficulties they're having. Right? How are we going to feed our families in the wilderness? Where do we find water? Are the Egyptians going to get us? Are the other nations going to be stronger than us? How will we take care of ourselves? How can we possibly walk in the wilderness with God? What is God's answer to their need? Every single time He comes down and He says, your answer to those problems is me. The Lord is the answer. He Himself is what we need. In all of your life, beloved, what you always need is a better view of God. You realize that this is, this is why the Scriptures are so significant. This is why we should not let them gather dust on our nightstands because this is the revelation of the true and living God. This is who He is and what He has done. It, it's not Him. That's not what I mean. It reveals to us who He is and what He's done. And He continually shows us in Exodus that this is what we need to continue on. This is what we need in the midst of our difficulties. 
in the midst of sickness and disease, you need a view of God who is the sustainer, who is the one who carries you and comforts you, who gives you strength to continue to fight even when you have no strength left in yourself. In the midst of of those difficult seasons of parenting, there's only one, right? Please somebody tell me there's only one season of difficulty in parenting. We need a view of God who loves His children and who disciplines His children. We need a view of our Father in Heaven who loves us despite all of our disobedience. We need a view of that God who refuses to be rid of us so that we can continue in those hard seasons of parenting. In the midst of death, when it looms, maybe even when it it overcomes us and it's about to take us down, we need a view of the Son of God who has conquered death. Who has declared that the grave has no power over His people. In the midst of the frustrations of all the other day in and day out woes of this life, we need a view of God the Holy Spirit who is always with us. In the mundane work of 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 laundry and jobs and bills and, and making friends and offending people and trying to hold everything together, we need a God. We need a view of Him that reminds us that He is always here and never leaving. And that He cares about those little teeny tiny things that drive us absolutely insane. What we need is what God prescribed for the Israelites by His own actions over and over again. He continually came back to them with a sight of Himself. He is reminding us that this is the heart of our relationship with Him. A continual soaking in who He is and what He has done. Continual remembering of who God is. This will give you aid in those hard days. So, seek Him. Here's where the broken record comes back, all right? You seek Him. And how do you do it? Through the ordinary means of grace. Through His Word and prayer and the sacraments. James tells us, draw near to God. Listen to this promise. Have you thought about this recently? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's a promise for His people. That when you feel far from Him, He is not far from you. And if you will draw near, He will respond to you. He will come close to you. James says just a couple verses of la- a couple verses later, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. And sometimes it's pride that keeps us from Him. It's a humbling thing to go to God in the midst of a cold season and ask again that He would draw near, but He will respond and He will lift you up. Don't neglect those things. So, if, if, that, if that's the big picture, that what God is continually doing in Exodus is showing us a sight of Himself, if what we need indeed is a sight of God, then what does this passage reveal to us about Him? And this is where the three points about the covenant come into play as we work our way through the text. 
this covenant renewal preaches three things to God's people about their relationship to Him. Let me tell you the three things and then we'll work through. First, your relationship with God is one of grace. Secondly, your relationship with God is framed by worship. And thirdly, your relationship with God is through Christ alone. If you're keeping track or taking notes, it's really three things. It's the character of the covenant and the content of the covenant and the mediator of the covenant. Grace, worship, and Christ. First, beloved, your relationship with God as one of His people is a relationship of grace. This is the character of the covenant. Moses asks, there in verse 9, for the Lord to be in the midst of Israel and to return to their former relationship. Forgive this, there's our favorite phrase for Israelites, stiff-necked people. And take us again for your inheritance. Forgive, what's the sin he's thinking about? Certainly, most certainly, chapter 32. Right? Moses went up on the mountain to get rules about worship, everything they should do properly in worship, and he comes down to find out that they haven't even received the rules and they've broken all of them already. Forgive their sin and take us again for your inheritance. And the Lord does it. His response implies agreement with Moses' request. Look at verse 10 and 11. And he said, speaking about the Lord, he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as not have been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. Just there in verse 10, before we get before we move along, he's, he's suggesting um, that they, they will return to this special status that they have as God's people. That they will once again be His as His inheritance, and the Lord will set them apart again, you see, by these marvels and works that He will do, such as not been seen in the earth. And he continues on in verse 11, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. He's saying a part of this work that I'm going to do for you is that I am going to go into the land and and drive the people out. You know, when you hear that, think, um, think Jericho, right? Probably the most marvelous, miraculous aspect of the conquering of Canaan there in the beginning of Joshua. Of course, it all fell off towards, towards the middle of that book, but, but the beginning of it was, was a part of this, this marvelous deliverance and conquering of the land that God had promised. God doesn't owe this to them. If God owes anything to the Israelites, it's the opposite of all of this. He ought to consume them and destroy them. The covenant, therefore, must be of a gracious character. You see that God hears the request for mercy there in verse 9. And in 10 and 11, he responds. He says, yes, I will do this. I will go with you. He hears and answers. He is forgiving them. He is pardoning them. He is displaying His mercy and His faithfulness, His long-suffering and His kindness to them. This is why our confessional standards rightly call this covenant, not, not only here in Exodus, but the rest of the covenants that are included, we call the whole thing the covenant of grace. 
and all of it. Think of the covenant as our relationship with God, the one that He has formed with us. The whole relationship that we have with Him is one of grace. I just want to think about it from two perspectives here. Your, your relationship with God is, is all of grace. And what this means in the first place is that it has nothing, uh, rather your, your relationship with God is nothing that you have secured on your own. Right? Did any of you go seeking after God? Now your experience might feel like you went seeking after Him, but, but on our own, apart from the work of His Spirit in our hearts, none of us seeks for God. Not one. All of us have turned aside. The venom of asps is on our list. We, we all have fallen away. All of us have turned away from God. None of us have sought after God. We didn't secure our relationship with Him out of our own merit. But we do have to guard against this kind of thinking, don't we? Especially when we've been in the church for, for some generations or even just for a long time in our own life. God saved me because I'm really bringing something to the table. Or we may believe what many of us grew up hearing, that God did the hard work, but what? That we chose to form a relationship with Him. We invited Him into our hearts. Boy, is that not just the greatest piece of blasphemy that's ever been proclaimed from pulpits in this country. You want to invite Jesus in? This Holy Spirit makes you alive. Christ dies to set you free. God works. It is nothing that we have secured on our own. It's not as if we've done God a favor in some way. What does Paul write to us in Ephesians chapter 2? By grace you have been saved through faith. And just in case we get confused, he keeps going. He says, by the way, this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of works. So that no one may boast. Doesn't that make the gospel so much sweeter to you? When you realize that it's all of God's initiative and all of God's grace and mercy to you that he started it at the other end of it we have to think about this though that that your relationship with God is one of grace and this also this means that that it's nothing that you keep on your own there are popular heresies out there that basically preach something like God gets you into the covenant by grace but you keep yourself there by obedience and that is heresy that is not what the Bible proclaims. Your security as a part of God's covenant people is not based in your own work. You don't have to check enough boxes because you're worried about getting booted out one day. Our, our salvation is not secure because of our, isn't it often, sort of weak and failing grasp on Christ. Our salvation is guaranteed and secure because of Christ's unyielding, unbreakable grip upon us, His people. You can't secure it on your own. Neither can you keep it on your own. It is all of grace, all of mercy, so that the psalmist can write in Psalm 94, 14, the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. Doesn't that make your salvation so much sweeter? To know that 
that if he's got you, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not a thing. Your relationship with God is one of grace, but we also see here that our relationship with God is framed by worship. It's the content of the covenant. The requirements that are listed, they begin in in verse 12, run through down through verse 26. You know, every covenant has a list of stipulations. The stipulations here focus on a particular flavor of rules. Uh, What I mean by that is there, there are a lot of stipulations in the covenant that God made with Moses and the people. Right? Lots of different rules they had to obey. Mostly, summar- we would say they are summarized in the Ten Commandments, but, but there are other aspects of them that are uh, extrapolated in other places. But when God comes here and renews the covenant, as He reminds them about their obligations in the covenant, He doesn't cover, really, the stretch of the Ten Commandments. He kind of hones in on just a couple, just different aspects of them. Do you notice that they all have to do with worship? Look at 12. 12 through 16. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited. 16. You take of their daughters for your sons, and your daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. And don't be ensnared by the, the foreign worship of these foreign gods, that these verses show the um, God's fervent zeal for his own glory on the one hand. And God will have his people worship no one else but him. And he knows that if, if they go into the land, they need to steer clear of anything that may entice them to, to the worldly standards that already exist there. Don't don't go and, and participate in their worship. You know, verse, verse 15, uh, verse, uh, at the end of verse 15, you know, you're invited, you know, to go to the party. You don't want to say, I mean, we're good Southerners. You can't say no to an invitation from your new neighbors. And he says, but don't do it. Don't go and eat the food that they sacrifice to their foreign gods and their foreign idols. Don't engage in their ritual practices because you will fall. That you will, you see in verse 15, that they, they whore after these gods, but by the end of 16, it's your daughters and your sons who are now also whoring after their gods. Steer clear of those worldly things. Don't worship those gods. Worship only me. Verse 17 is rather clear in the, sort of in the wake of chapter 32. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Moses, what do you mean? No gods of cast metal? Do you remember the golden bull? Okay, right, sorry, never mind. Do you remember? Don't do that again. Only needs a verse. Don't do that again. Verse 18 commands them to observe these feasts, the unleavened bread, to give firstborns to the Lord. It's, it's all, they're functioning to be an acknowledgement to God in their worship of Him, of, of God's bounty of His blessing upon them, of Him, of, of him pouring out his, his grace and kindness upon them, and then their worship, these, these um, givings of the firstborns to God, are, are giving God credit and praise for what He's done. 21, 
reiterates a popular commandment. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. The period there, there's, there's a question I'm sure that somebody would have asked. What about when it's planting time? What about when we're harvesting? And none of us in here know, know what that's like. But you can understand it, can't you? What about those seasons where work is just really difficult? You know, tax accountants, right? Well, not in April, right? I mean, no, not in April. So the rest of verse 21, in plowing time and in harvest, indeed, you shall rest. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks. He goes on to talk about the other aspects of this observance. It's just an interesting thing. This is, you know, your homework to take home. God reiterates, this is the third time at least, that he's formally reiterating the fourth commandment. It's not an insignificant thing to him. The rest of the Old Testament will continually harken back. One of the reasons Israel gave in to worldliness is because they didn't uphold the Sabbaths and the festivals that the Lord had commanded of them. He didn't give the time the Lord asked for. 25 and 26 simply call them to make prompt offerings and consume the Passover in a speedy manner. All of these in 12 through 26 have to do with worship. Here's the question. Why? Why is God honing in on this particular thread of commandments? Well, three thoughts, the third being the most significant. First of all, worship is where the people failed most immediately. Right Back in chapter 32, Moses is receiving the laws for worship and comes down to realize they've broken all of them already. Right, So it's very important that they be reminded of this again. Secondly, these show and communicate the importance of worship in the life of God's people. Your relationship to God is framed by worship. The Sabbath is a good one there to to give attention to. The Lord's Day serves um, to help us remember who He is and what He's done. To help us remember that gracious condescension that He has extended to us. The Lord's Day causes us to remember the gospel of Jesus, that He was raised on this day, and that we ought always to remember what He has done for us and how He has saved us. A friend of mine said recently in a sermon, the Lord's Day is a full-orbed acknowledgement that all of our lives are now ruled by and ordered by our relationship with God and our redemption. God's focus on these in particular remind us as God's people the importance of worship. But thirdly and most significantly, and perhaps wrapped up in number two there, worship is where the Lord has promised to meet you. The ordinances of his worship is where God has promised to meet you. The Lord has made it clear, has he not, that he is not to be approached in any way that we think is best, but in the ways he has specifically prescribed. We call these things the means of grace. The way we receive the blessing, the grace of God. And the way we receive these benefits of the means of grace here is by doing the means of grace. The means of grace are not about earning God's favor, or twisting His arm, or controlling His blessing. 
They are about readying ourselves for consistent, one man writes, consistent saturation in the role of God's tides. Another author, some of you have read actually, writes this. Speaking about the means of grace, he says, I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. There are, these are paths along which he has promised his favor. God has revealed the places that he has promised to bless. Namely, the word proclaimed and prayers lifted up and the sacraments administered. And aren't we fools if we avoid those things and wonder why our lives are in shambles, wonder why we don't have comfort from the Holy Spirit is because we have not come to the place where God has promised to bless. He says, I'll be here on these paths. Walk on these paths. So again, draw near to God in these ways. You will meet him there. Because our, our lives are meant to be framed as he frames it here for the Israelites, are framed by worship. This is where we meet with God in the ways that he has provided. And thirdly and lastly, your relationship to God is through Christ alone. As we look here and see the mediator of this covenant. Look at 27 and 28. God makes this covenant with Moses and with Israel in him. 27, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets of the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Ligon Duncan draws out here the significance of God identifying Moses as the mediator and identifying that God has made the covenant with Moses and with the people in Moses. And he stands as a representative. But the people can't come to God if they don't come through Moses, so to speak. Ligon says this, God is saying here, just to make it clear, Israel, without my mediator, you don't exist. Without my mediator interceding for you, you're judged. Without my mediator petitioning for you, you're condemned. Without my mediator supplicating for you, my wrath come da comes down on you. The people needed Moses. They, they thought very lightly of him previously, that Moses whom God gave us. But God makes it very clear here that the, the, the covenant is nothing without the mediator. And still today, Moses, isn't he just a shadow of Christ to come? Isn't he just pointing forward to the true mediator of the covenant of grace? We have no relationship with God, that all the things we've talked about tonight in terms of our relationship with Him and our covenant with Him, none of it exists outside of Christ. None of it exists outside of our covenant head, the Lord Jesus, that without Him for our sin, we only have judgment and condemnation and wrath righteously administered. We need God's mediator. And it is only the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are so blessed that God has chosen to make friends with us 
that He has covenanted with us. He has drawn near and made us alive that we may also draw near to Him. I'm just going to quote Elisha Coles one more time as we close. It's an encouragement to us to continue on in these things. It's an encouragement to us to be reminded of the grace that God has shown, the great responsibility that we have as His people to seek Him, be comforted that we know Him, be compelled to follow Him. Coles writes, There is nothing more equal and just than to worship and serve Him whose we are, to love and to live to Him from whom we have our life and breath. May God help us. Amen. Father in heaven, please send your Holy Spirit for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Help us, Lord, we are weak. Gird us up with faith that we may trust in the Lord Jesus, that we may know life in him, we may walk with him. Help us, Lord, in all these things that you may be honored and glorified. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.